Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Brickabendi Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, and I'm also CLEAR's President-Elect. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is an opportunity for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Today's topic is Sunrise Reviews and Right-Sizing Occupation Regulation. In more than a dozen states, regulatory agencies regularly conduct what is known as Sunrise Reviews, basically studies examining whether proposed occupational licenses and other regulations are a good idea. A new report examines 30 years worth of Sunrise Reviews and draws lessons for licensing policy. Joining us today are two of the report's co-authors, Lisa Nepper and Kathy Sanchez of the Institute for Justice, and CLEAR member Elizabeth Carter, who conducted Sunrise Reviews for the Virginia Board of Health Professions. We're glad to have you all with us today. Welcome. Yeah. Happy to be here. Likewise. Thank you. And we're glad to speak with you. And also let me thank our listeners for joining us today. Around a dozen states have Sunrise laws and active programs. So what do they look like and what are their common features? So Lisa, let me let me address that with you. So if you would. Absolutely. So Sunrise started back in the 1970s. And at the time, policymakers were concerned about over-regulation of occupations and uh, restricting entry into honest work. But of course, it's also important to maintain reasonable regulations that protect public health and safety. And there was an awareness that a lot of these regulations were being backed by uh, members of the occupations themselves. And so part of the question here was how can we study this and how can we step back and examine when a license or another occupational regulation is really a good idea and genuinely in the public public's interest, not just the occupation's interest. And I think that the commonalities that our research identified among uh, Sunrise programs across states help illustrate those animating purposes from all the way back in the 1970s. And there's four that I'll note. One is that most Sunrise programs uh, ask regulation proponents to offer some justification for the regulation. They might do this through an application process or through a questionnaire process or public hearings or what have you. But the idea is to say, hey, what, what evidence do you have that there's a real threat to public health and safety that would justify some type of intervention on the part of the government? Secondly, these programs typically charge reviewers, the people who write the studies, who write the reports, uh, with searching for evidence of harm. So it's not just anecdote and it's not hypothetical, but some type of concrete fact-based evidence that again would justify some type of intervention. Third, reviewers are typically asked to weigh costs and benefits to say, what might the downsides of regulation be? What would the upsides be? And how do these come out in the wash? But the fourth thing that I'll point to, I think is one of the things that really makes uh, Sunrise, a fascinating policy when it comes to occupational regulation. And that's the idea of least restrictive regulation. So it's one thing to say that 
there are risks from an occupation, that there are threats to public health and safety and that they're based in fact, they're grounded in evidence. But it's another to say, what is the right solution? Is it licensing or is it something less restrictive like certification or registration, business regulations, what have you? Um, and, and that's where the concept of right-sizing regulation comes in. And that's how we, we make sure that we preserve open entry while protecting public health and safety and preserving, preserving frankly, the resources and, and time and energies of regulators to make sure that they're focusing their efforts uh, properly on, on well thought out policies. And so that's kind of an overview of, of some of the key and most important commonalities of a Sunrise Review. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I think using the, the proverbial, if you would, buckets, uh, when you're looking at rules to be able to drop them in each of the different buckets to kind of get a feel for uh, how they apply to, to regulation now, which is it's, it's great. And I, I wish more states would probably do that. Um, so, Kathy, now I understand that IJ's new report gathered and analyzed nearly 500 Sunrise reviews. Um, so, what did you find and what are the implications does your research hold for occupational licensing policy? Right, so the 30,000 foot view shows evidence of an over-licensing problem and evidence that Sunrise processes, when done well, can help mitigate that problem. So, Sunrise can help slow the growth of licensing. And breaking that down, we found that reviewers, who are the government agencies themselves, um, they overwhelmingly recommend against licensing. So this is either, um, usually it's recommending no new regulation, uh, but sometimes it's uh, kind of what Lisa said, uh, which is recommending a less restrictive regulation. So this is like government certification, registration, or a business regulation of some sort. Um, and what this tells us is that most licenses being proposed don't actually uh, stand up to the scrutiny of Sunrise. So they aren't actually necessary to um, alleviate uh, the public's health and safety, um, and they don't meet that objective Sunrise criteria. Um, again, either because there's no evidence of harm by members of the occupation or the costs will somehow uh, outweigh the benefits. And we also found that the legislatures do typically uh, listen to this advice. So they do um, heed reviewers' warnings against licensing, uh, but they still enact licensing more often than Sunrise reviewers recommend it. So what this tells us overall is that Sunrise is not a magic solution to the over-licensing problem. Rather, it's a counterbalance to uh, the industry groups who are typically the ones to request regulation. Well, thank you for that. Now, I know Virginia has a long history of conducting uh, Sunrise Reviews. Now, Liz, um, I want to take a moment to congratulate you on your very recent retirement. After 31 years with Virginia's regulatory boards, I know they will uh, certainly miss you. Um, but with that experience as a regulator, um, uh, can you walk us through the process and give us an example or two of, of Sunrise reviews that you've been involved with? That sure. would be great. Sure. Uh, absolutely. And, but I want to say, first of all, I think and it's, it's, it's brought out in your report, 
it's important for the listeners to understand that the legislature is the only is the final arbiter of whether a profession or occupation should be regulated, the degree of that regulation, and even the body that the organizational structure where regulation would take place. So just to be fair to every <laughs> to the, the reviewers and to everybody else. Um, and also just so everybody understands too, in Virginia, not all health professions are, are regulated. Uh, and not all of them that are regulated are regulated in my department, but we get a bunch of them. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, the role of our board of health professions, which is comprised of members from the, each of the licensing boards uh, and five citizen members, is, is purely advisory. So we can't make anybody do anything. Uh, they've been in existence since the late 1970s, um, as uh, Lisa was bringing uh, forth. Um, and you know, their role is to look at to do sunrise reviews. They also do other things. But uh, back in the 1980s, actually, they established some of the criteria that I'm going to talk about here in just a little bit, uh, a little bit further. Uh, in 1991, they actually created a document uh, that's been updated in 2019. It's our policies and procedures for the evaluation of the need to regulate health professions and occupations. Long title, but it is our Bible. It really is. Um, it documents the board's authority uh, to, produce, to do the, the sunrise reviews. Uh, it details the particular uh, policies and procedures that each one of these things has to follow. Uh, and uh, the, the, the studies are governed by seven criteria. Uh, these criteria really are rooted in our constitution. It may be different in different states, don't know. Uh, and it's in, uh, it's in our, just in our philosophy. You'll see it in our, our code of Virginia that, um, that licensure or uh, professional regulation would be, it's an occupational property right. Um, and so we only abridge an individual's right to practice something without a license only to the degree that's necessary, which is what we talked about before, the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Uh, and no abridgment can be more than um, that is, is necessary to protect or preserve uh, the public safety, health, and welfare. Our seven criteria are the risk of harm, the very first one. It must be met before we even do anything else when something comes in. Um, and that's a risk to the consumer, and it has to be attributable to the practice of that particular profession, not just because bad things have happened because people in that profession have done things. It's got to be there because they've done things wrong because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Their level of whatever their competency is isn't clear. So that's part of this process. They also have to show a specialized skills and training. You know, they, have, they can't just be, well, anybody says, I'm going to be this profession. What are you? What do you do? So we really know what that is. And so that the members of the General Assembly will also understand what it is these folks are doing. Uh, autonomous practice is important for us. If you're at a facility, for example, if you're overseen by others, there's really no need. If, you know, if you're going to hang a shingle out and you can be out there by yourself and the consumer has to come to you and there's no other oversight, that's another piece of this puzzle that goes into the decisions that they make. We look at the scopes of practice for that particular profession. You've got to see if it overlaps with other professions. You know, we're not necessarily protecting turf, but you also have to make, make it clear. What is it, again, what is this profession doing? We also look at the economic impact, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, number six is alternatives to regulation. I'm glad Lisa brought this up. There are things you can do. You know, uh, there are injunctions that can be done. There are all sorts of facility inspections and that sort of thing that can happen. And again, our very last and there are, you know, final one that everything has to be paid attention to. The least restrictive regulation would have to be imposed. Um, as I mentioned, if criterion one is not met, we're done. We don't do anything further. Uh, this, our policies and procedures manual also outlines the levels of regulation. You mentioned earlier, licensure, statutory certification registration. And we actually have a, like a cookbook. It refers back to the specific criteria for licensure to be uh, 
recommended, all seven criteria must be met. And for the others, there are particular ones, and we tell you how to do that. In terms of process, um, we address three questions in this policies and procedures manual. Who may request a study and how? Uh, how the study is to be conducted and what happens to the results? So everybody that's in this, you know, in the meta request will know, the public knows, the legislature knows, this is what we, the questions that we answer in our studies. In terms of, you know, who may request a study, basically anyone, an interested party can do that. Um, most often we do, we do receive requests from um, the, our general assembly, uh, either through a legislative resolution or letters from individual uh, members. The governor can do it sometimes, and they, they can if they want to. Uh, our department's director can do that. Uh, but the bulk, the far bulk we have is the professional occupational regulations or associations. Sometimes these individuals try to do an end run and go straight to the legislature, which they can do. They can do. But often what happens is those, those members of the General Assembly go kick it back to Board of Health Professionals to review this. Um, when the, the request comes in, we recommend that someone who is responsible from that group meet with, with staff. And we kind of go like, what is it that you're proposing? You know, give us some insight first. Uh, and then they have to draft a formal letter. Uh, and there's a, again, there's procedure in our manual that says, you know, we think we're dangerous because, and you know, all these kinds of things. They sort of tell you what they think their response is to the criteria up front. That gets placed before the Board of Health Professions itself to decide, to ask questions if they need to do that, uh, to decide whether to do the study at all. They can say no. Uh, we've had them say no before uh, because we'd just done one that was very similar and we said no to that. Um, and, but if they decide to go forward, uh, it gets assigned to our regulatory research committee, comprised of five members uh, of the, the general board. Um, and it's, um, there's a work plan that staff, yours truly and some others, uh, going forward, somebody else will be doing that. Uh, but again, it's, it's laid out by, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? So uh, you'll have the background, the scope, uh, and the methodology, bringing up that methodology again. Um, and then you have to address the very specific questions. We really get into granular details. In the back of our manual, there are a whole host of questions uh, that go into that application when they do it up front to begin with. Um, so they'll address generally, what are you, the general questions, and then each of the criteria. And then we take that and we don't trust anything they tell us. You can't do that. <laughs> so everything we do, uh, we have to independently validate what comes in. It helps us to get some structure, like what are, what is this particular profession, but that's what we do. Um, our studies always consist of, if you can find available literature, um, you review the latest job analyses or role delineation studies that have been done. That way you have a sense of what are the, not what's the knowledge, skills, ability, and the individual tasks these people are doing. So if you look at the risk of harm, if you do this task wrong because you're too, you know, you don't know what you're doing, that's how we get to it. It's not just, oh, you know, Ms. Jones got hurt by you know, Dr. Smith, you know, what happened? We, we actually will look at what, where is that risk of harm in what you say you are and how you've defined yourself. We also look at, uh, you know, their um, education and training requirements, um, examinations that they may have if they have a national one. We also look at any national or uh, state information, including the laws uh, and regulations that may already exist. We look at the disciplinary history that may be in another state. Um, we look at malpractice information and a whole bunch of other stuff, and I won't, I'm, I'm taking up too much time, but anyway, we'll go into that. Uh, we also determine if there are similar professions, so we make sure that we, if, we'll also describe them uh, to, so that the, the members that are considering whether this is stepping on other people's scope, it, it can happen as well. So anyway, we hold public hearings. That is very important. We never have a, a study where we don't have the public invited to speak, and they can be proponents, opponents, anyone who's interested. 
Um, and so we also accept written comment. All of that gets condensed into a report that goes back to the regulatory research committee. And the research committee's members are there for their, their hearings as well. So they ask questions. Um, and then they render a recommendation. Yes, no, or we need to have more study, those kinds of things. Uh, if they recommend uh, whatever recommendation they make, it goes to the full board and then they can discuss it some more <laughs> so that everybody, if they've got questions, they let us know. Um, if they render a decision that says, okay, they need to be regulated, then they have to explain that level uh, anyway and so forth. And, and But I'll tell you this, it then goes uh, from our board to our state, uh, to our agency's director and then to our secretary of health and human resources. Or and if, if it's a legislator had made a request the report would go to that individual as well. Okay. It is very important to note, we do not interact with the legislators beyond that. We don't just, the board members don't do it. We don't do it. We're looking at this within the context of the study. Um, and basically the, the advice, our, our job is to advise. The advice is contained in the report. It stands on its own. So it gets passed on. We put it on our website um, and there you go. So we, we do not we do not make any kind of proposals for regular for uh, regulation. We don't do any of that. Um, so anyway, I just want to make sure you understood that. Um, in terms of an example, I know I'm running long. Um, none really stand up because they're all treated the same. We, we that's the whole point of this. We try to not you know we don't have favorites. <laughs> we we have had um, occasions where they've come back multiple times. I will say that there are two or three different professions that maybe back in the 80s the board said no. And then they came back in the early 90s and they said no. And then they come back the third time. But what they do is a little bit different. And then I'll give one example. It is the athletic trainers. Back in the original studies, they were largely working with uh, adult patients. They were working like, with sports teams and things like that. And OK, so, you know, everybody kind of knew what they were and what they were doing. But what was happening uh, in the later 90s is you, you have people calling themselves athletic trainers who might be working with with children. Um, and their little sports teams and things like that. And we had instances in which um, detached retinas were being missed. Um, we had kids that had, had broken bone. You know, we had that kind of evidence that came forward to the board saying people are calling themselves athletic trainers and they really may just be somebody that's in the neighborhood knows how to tape something. And parents think this is an athletic trainer and they're not. Um, and so with that level of harm, we were, you know, the board said, okay, we at least recommend that they, if they're going to use this title, you know, and they're going to be working with children, they, they can't do that. They must be what an athletic trainer had become by that time. Uh, we recommended that they didn't, not, not all of them had to be licensed, but um, the, the general assembly then took that and said, no, let's just go ahead and make them all licensed. But that was, it took them three times before they came to us and their world had changed. So anyway, I'm, I rambled on <laughs> a lot, but I hopefully uh, I've answered that question for you. Um, Yep. Well, yeah, that's good. So, so Liz, you, you mentioned, you know, legislators and, 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 and I think that was maybe the first thing you mentioned was, you know, look, we don't make the decision. They're the ones that make the decision. Right. Uh, obviously, you talked about how they don't necessarily interact with your program. Um, they're not, I'm assuming they're not part of the research, but mm -hmm. ultimately, how do they how do they respond to your recommendations? Is that where uh, like how does that work? I, you know, I would I would agree with what you see in, in, in Lisa and Kathy's report. Uh, if we recommend regulation, they tend to do that. If we recommend against it, they tend not to. Um, so, you know, and again, I'd say about eight, really about 80 percent of the time we say no. 
Uh, and so Virginia is very conservative in terms of the professions that it regulates. Um, so, um, yeah, I think they, they do pay attention to what, what we do, um, particularly those that have been that, around for a while. Great. Yeah, yeah. And they know to kick it to us. That, yeah. That's the one thing that's helpful is that they do know, you know, well, let's just let's let somebody else. And it takes the heat off of them as well, because, again, you know, you can't you, you can come and lot, you know, during the public hearings, you might want to say the lobbyists come in, they say their thing, but everybody else does, too. Uh, and we don't make that final decision. So uh, it, it just puts that that barrier there. It gives them a little bit of safe space. Uh, and then we have objective information. We go here. We don't have, as my father used to say, a dog in the fight. <laughs> we don't. Uh, and so. You know, here it is. This is what we came up with, and this is how we did it, and why we did it, and we do it the same way for everybody. So you're not being picked on. Um, so I think that that That's is helpful. Great. Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, in in your experience, you've been doing this for 31 years. Uh, what do you think are the keys to conducting a strong sunrise review? You honestly, it's the consistent your consistent procedures. Um, <laughs> here's our policies and procedures. This. <laughs> This is this cookbook, if you want to call it that, um, explains why we do what we do, how we do what we do and what happens to it. That doing that allows you to have an empirically based uh, a rationale for what other recommendations are, are made. And so you'll know exactly why. Um, and so I think that's it. And, the, and the, it's a transparent process. It's an equitable process. So it, I know I can't say it in fewer words, but your methodology has to be. Um, it has to be rigorous and it has to be transparent and clear uh, and as, as empirically based as you can make it. Well, I think you summed it up best by saying, you know, consistent, right? And, and having a cookbook or policies and procedures in place to, to make sure that, that everyone is treated the same um, is, is, is brilliant. So uh, I think it's been great to hear from that experience from a regulator. That's fantastic. Um, so turning back to the research side of things um, with Lisa and Kathy, um, we'll start with you, Lisa. What does the research say about how states can set up their Sunrise program for success? Absolutely. And I, I do hope folks will use our report as a resource. We have interviews in there with folks who conduct Sunrise reviews, including Elizabeth, as well as reviewers from Vermont and, and Colorado, and they provide a lot of very practical inside tips on, on how to do Sunrise well. Um, but, you know, I think that there are three keys that we identified from our research that, that jive really well with what Elizabeth talked about. One is reviewer independence um, and having uh, that safe space where reviewers can pay attention to the facts and the evidence without the political pressures that come from the legislature. And we have seen in a few states where Sunrise is embedded within the legislative process, it hasn't been very effective. Um, and the reports, have, the reports that have come out of it have not been very strong. And so that reviewer independence and that wall between the political process and the research process is, is really essential. A second thing is, I believe, is the time and resources to adequately study the problem. Um, Elizabeth talked about verifying every piece of information. That takes time. It takes effort uh, to, to really do a good job digging into the details. And third, the cookbook, having clear, strong criteria, establishing them in statute uh, to the extent possible, 
is I think really important to setting a program up for success. Rafi, anything you add? Yeah, so I'd like to underscore uh, the importance of following these best practices. So whether it's uh, looking at uh, rigorous statutes or building enough time into uh, your review process or really encouraging a thorough review of uh, evidence of harm, um, you know, I think you can say for pretty much any policy, yes, you should listen to uh, best practices, but it's especially important, I think, when it comes to Sunrise, because if you have a Sunrise program that isn't well implemented um, or that conducts uh, very poor reviews, um, it can actually do more harm than good. And uh, to describe how this would happen is um, a review that kind of just has a cursory glance over the evidence, the costs, the benefits, the harm will tend to over-recommend licensing. Um, and this can serve as a green light to legislators and say to them, um, hey, a thorough review has occurred when actually it hasn't. So they'll see the sunrise in name only and um, kind of see it, it again as a, as a green light to regulate. So you might end up with more licenses with a poor sunrise review process than you would without a sunrise review process at all. So this is something, uh, like Lisa said, uh, we've seen in legislative com uh, states that have their reviews in legislative committees. Um, in Arizona, for example, we've seen this. Um, but overall, yeah, I just say to go ahead and review the best practices from other states, um, including Virginia. Uh, but like Lisa says, we, we do a pretty good job, I'd, I'd say, um, covering this in the report. Excellent. Well, it certainly sounds like running a robust Sunrise program takes time and resource. So let me let me pose this question. I'll do that to all three of you. Um, we'll start with Liz. Sure. Um, in the end, uh, do the benefits outweigh the program cost? Oh, absolutely. Our our program costs are small. Um, the we're in an umbrella agency, and so uh, you know we have staff that can conduct research uh, already. We're going to do it for other things anyway, so we're already here. Um, also, uh, if we find we need additional help, we the agency, or actually the board has funds to pay for a consultant to come in, a graduate student to come in to aid us. So, it, but the costs are relatively small, uh, particularly in the age, good Lord. Thank goodness for the internet. I used to have to write letters all the time to all these different places to get it come in the mail. So no, uh, it's, much, it's much better uh, than it was, but um, no, we've never, We've always had what we needed commenced with, with what we felt was the, the quality work that we must do. Yeah, I would, I would underscore that uh, in the end, this is about providing good information to legislators. It's about providing them solid, impartial evidence and analysis uh, to help them make stronger decisions, um, even in the face of political pressure. And so I think that when done well, it is, uh, it is an investment that is well worth it um, to inform policymaking in a really rigorous and evidence-backed way. So I think an investment is the right way to describe this. So we're not just talking about um, a wonky policy idea here. Um, we're talking about at the end of the day, uh, this is something that affects real people. So uh, it means uh, stopping unnecessary licenses means 
uh, fewer costs to the state and to taxpayers over time um, and more people freely working in the occupation of their choice, um, as well as more options and better quality services to consumers uh, due to the greater competition. Well, excellent. Well, I think this has been a great start to the conversation. I, I want to let listeners know about a follow-up webinar that we've got scheduled for this for, for June 29th. So our speakers will be diving deeper into what the research and the experience can tell us about establishing a strong Sunrise Review Program. So we really look forward to that. So thank you, Lisa, Kathy, and Liz for speaking with me today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. And we'd like to continue this conversation on clear communities. This podcast episode will be posted there and you can reply with your comments. Here are some additional questions to think about, maybe even pose in the community. How do you think a Sunrise program might work in your state? If your state already has one, are there any improvements that you'd like to see happen? Please share your comments on clear communities. I also wanna thank our listeners for tuning in for this episode. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation uh, very soon. If you're new to the Clear Podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take an opportunity to leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners like you to find us. Feel free to visit our website at www.clearh2.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of any upcoming online programs and in-person events. Finally, I'd like to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. She is our content coordinator and editor for this program. Once again, I'm Lyle Debsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.